Thank you, Father, that you have placed us in Jesus' hand. And thank you that um, each one that you give to Jesus cannot be taken out of his hand. So thank you that we are held in a firm but a gentle grip. It's a firm grip. Thank you for that. Lord, as we turn our hearts and minds toward you, would you stir in us a deeper affection and even just give us that sense of your embrace this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It is true, our sabbatical begins tomorrow. And we are, thank you, yeah, we are very excited. So we appreciate the blessing of our leaders to go away for this time and to seek after Jesus and the encouragement and the prayer uh, to go for those of you that will be praying for us while we're gone. Just wanna encourage you to pray for our staff, pray for uh, our oversight team as we're gone. We're so thankful for their blessing to leave because that means they have a blessing to lead, yeah? And so um, really thankful for them and for all that's going to be happening. For those of you that are going to be preaching, I'm um, already so proud of you for how hard you've worked uh, in this season to get that done. And so um, just really looking forward to you hearing all of that. Um, but we really are, we will be engaging in what Henry Nowlin calls a ministry of absence. He says that there are two kinds of ministries to which ministers or pastors are called a ministry of presence and a ministry of absence. And so our ministry toward you doesn't cease, but the tenor of it, the tone of it will change. And, and just, as, just to be gently clear with you, the oversight team has given us their blessing to be unavailable by phone and email this, during this time. And so if you don't, for example, have Holden's number in your phone, today would be a good time to get it. Um, if you don't have a contact information for somebody else in this room, now would be a good time to get it. Um, and there'll be a directory that we're going to be releasing and all those kinds of pieces, but they really have given uh, their full blessing for us to engage in this ministry of absence, and so we shall. Um, not because we don't love you, but because we do. Um, and just before we get started this morning, I want to talk about something, and I'm going to talk about it, and I, I want you to hear me say, do not applaud when we talk about this, okay? So there was a significant shift in the culture of our country this week. Um, that to me is really actually surprising, um, even as someone that has been committed to pro-life causes for as long as I have been, it was really surprising. And I know for some it is a pleasant surprise and for some it is a dismaying surprise. Uh, even within our spiritual family. And so in this season, I want to invite you to a holy curiosity. I want to invite you to a holy curiosity. Um, this week, I was in a conversation where politics came up and I was dismissed pretty out of hand very quickly. That is not holy curiosity. I just want to encourage you to listen for the words behind the words and to have a curiosity as to what feelings and what positions are being taken, and, and to have a holy curiosity that suspends 
the hot takes and sound bites that we kind of are formed by on social media. And so to really lean in and wonder and ask about what's going on with the person, I want to invite you to have a holy curiosity about those around you. I want to invite you, and this is kind of always Kyle's frame and what I bring to the table, right? I, I want you to have a, I want to invite you to have a holy curiosity about what God is calling uh, those of us in this room, the people of Jesus. What is he calling us to do individually and corporately to advance a culture of life? Um, again, I'm weird, I know, and I tend to not think like everybody else does, but in my mind, what I have seen emerge over the last five days um, is an unprecedented missional opportunity, which I would call the second unprecedented missional opportunity we've had in two years. We have a unique Opportunity to bear witness to the good news of Jesus, to give everyone in our neighborhoods and networks an opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the good news, even in the midst of this. And so my curiosity is piqued for what is God calling us to do? Okay? And then I would also then ask you to have a holy curiosity about what God is doing. Okay? So scripture is very clear that he reigns over the earth. And scripture is very clear that human governments are in subject to him and a tool for his use, okay? And so focus your eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, and have a holy curiosity for what God is up to in this season, okay? Um, That's what I want to invite you into, is a holy curiosity for others, for potentially the, the apostolic call God would place on some of us in our spiritual family or all of us in our spiritual family, uh, but also for just what in the world is the Lord doing? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 11. In the movie Encanto, We meet a family that will talk about everything except for one thing, or really one person whose name is Bruno. Before the events of the movie take place, Bruno disappears. And like many families, Bruno's disappearance becomes a conversational taboo. We don't talk about Bruno. Or we will talk or maybe even sing about how we don't talk about Bruno, right? And thus the hit song, We Don't Talk About Bruno. And at the risk of spoiling the plot, here's the secret. Bruno hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, Bruno has never even left the house. And this morning we're beginning a series on prayer And I wonder if for many of us, prayer doesn't feel like Bruno. When it comes to prayer, we like to talk about it without talking about it. And it feels like if you don't know how to pray and you ask for help, it feels like you're breaking a rule, right? It feels like talking about Bruno. So prayer becomes this shadow hanging over us, this thing that we know we should be doing, that we ought to address, but we just 
can't, or we won't, or, or we don't know how to begin, because we feel too awkward or too insecure to really press into prayer. We feel embarrassed. Garrison Keeler remarks of Methodists, and by the way, most Christians, they really believe in prayer, but would practically die if asked to pray out loud. If you find yourself surrounded by prayer, but secretly wondering how prayer works, what it's about, and how to begin, you're in good company. Because in Luke 11, we find someone steeped in prayer, surrounded by prayer, finally asking the question all of us secretly have, Lord, teach us to pray. Look with me at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Verses that we are going to dwell in until basically the end of August. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. Give us each day the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and don't let us yield to temptation. I can just see it, can't you? The disciples at this point in Luke's gospel have begun to notice a pattern of prayer in Jesus' life. More often than not, in the gospel of Luke in particular, Jesus is withdrawing to pray. Feels like half of the time the Gospels, the disciples are like, Where did, who, who, ha, who was in charge of Jesus? He's gone to pray again, right? Jesus withdraws to pray, but Jesus' prayer life is so fruitful, so meaningful, so intimate with the Father, that finally one of the disciples just asks the question that's on everybody's mind, asks for some guidance, asks what's going on inside of Jesus's head while he prays. You see, the pressure just built. They've seen Jesus pray too much. They've even prayed with Jesus, but there's still a disconnect between what they see Jesus doing and where they are. And so finally, after watching Jesus pray, somebody blurts out, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus' response to that request, teach us to pray, is a prayer commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you've been hanging around church for a while, odds are that you know this prayer, and maybe you even have it memorized. If you haven't been hanging around church, Odds are you're still familiar with that prayer on some level. It shows up in movies, it shows up in television, or at the very least, you've been to a funeral where you've heard those words prayed. Here's the thing. Our familiarity with the words of this prayer and our ability to recount 
and recite those words, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that they are doing us any favors. This is where I start to get in trouble the next little bit. Andy Stanley wisely notes that time in erodes awareness of. The first time I ever walked in this building, I noticed at the back of the aisle, there's an iron burn in the carpet, right back there, by where Sue and Jordan are sitting. And uh, odds are you noticed it too when you first came. Odds are, if you've been here for a few months or a few years, you don't even know it's there anymore. Time in erodes awareness of. The more time we spend around something, the less we really can see it. And so in other words, our familiarity with the Lord's Prayer may not be helping us get at what the Lord, who taught the prayer, wanted us to get. Our familiarity with the Lord's Prayer may be even an obstacle, may even be an obstacle to a deeper relationship with the Lord who taught us that prayer. What I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at the Lord's Prayer, not liturgically, that is as a tool for worship, but literarily. I want us to read the Bible as literature. Why does Luke include this prayer in his gospel? Why does he include it here? Why is it different from the version that Matthew includes in his gospel? Let's consider for a moment that Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel alone, this is the third time that Jesus prays out loud. And every time that Jesus prays in the gospel of Luke, it advances the movement. It indicates a new section of the gospel is beginning. In this case, the Lord's prayer here in Luke 11 is about to kick off Jesus's ministry in Jerusalem. It's a shift of the geography and intensity of his ministry. Furthermore, in Luke's gospel, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are, one commentator says, kind of like a, a school of discipleship. It's interesting when you read those chapters. Go home and read Luke 9, 10, and 11, and just notice that when Luke decides to take the teachings of Jesus, all of them that he's heard, and edit them down into a section, what are the things that he says are core to discipleship? You're not going to like it. One has to do with justice, because it's the Good Samaritan. One has to do with evangelism. One has to do with prayer, otherwise known as all the things that we don't like about following Jesus. And in this section on discipleship, Jesus teaches a prayer, which is why I think the Lord's Prayer is probably more appropriately called the Disciples' Prayer. It's a prayer te that Jesus teaches to the disciples for their ownership. If you're looking for the Lord's Prayer, look at John 11. That's where Jesus' prayer is, okay? What, I, what I'm trying to do this morning is share boring information about the Lord's Prayer. I want to slow down the action on the play. I want to watch the passage in slow motion so that we don't just run to the words that we know, hear me say some things that you expect me to say, and then move on. So look again at Luke 11. Look at what happens in these verses. One, first, one of the disciples notices that Jesus is praying. And that prayer catches the disciples' attention, hits a tipping point that they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, this is kind of a trope when a passage is taught like this, but there are very few instances, very few instances indeed, 
where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them something specific. This is one of those few instances. They've seen him do miracles. They've seen him raise the dead, give sight to the blind. They've seen him teach in a way that would give him a massive following on social media if he were teaching now. But they don't ask Jesus, how do I be an Instagram influencer? They don't say, Jesus, how do I raise the dead? They say, teach me to pray. This, by the way, is a very Jewish question. It's why they say, teach us to pray, just like John taught his disciples. Right? One commentator notes that rabbinic disciples, the disciples of a rabbi, were known to request renowned rabbis to teach them prayers that would characterize and differentiate them from other rabbinistic schools. So like they want the Team Jesus prayer, right? John's got Team John prayer. We want, we want the Jesus version, right? We want the Passion Translation version, if you know, you know, you, uh, uh, of the prayer. And so Jesus teaches this prayer in verses 2 through 4, and there's a couple things that I want to tell you about this prayer. And the first is that every line of this prayer is unoriginal. Every line of this prayer is unoriginal. Every line of the Lord's Prayer is copy and pasted either from something in the Old Testament or a Jewish prayer that was prayed in worship in the first century. So, for example, a Jewish prayer from around this time begins, Magnified and sanctified be God's great name. Which sounds a lot like, Hallowed be thy name. In other words, the Lord's Prayer isn't new. It's a mixtape. Where's my 80s people at? It's a mixtape. It's a, it's a burnt CD, right? Of the greatest hits of prayer. Second, the Lord's Prayer, it's found in Matthew and Luke. There's slight variations between the two prayers. And here's why. It appears that whenever Jesus was asked to teach people to pray or that whenever Jesus went to teach about prayer, this is what he taught. Jesus was extremely unoriginal in his way of teaching prayer. He didn't offer new insights. He had one way of teaching prayer that he did over and over and over again. He taught a predictable pattern of prayer that anybody could use. In other words, the Lord's Prayer is a vigilante attempt to put prayer back in the hands of ordinary people, to put prayer in the hands of people who don't know how to pray. The Lord's Prayer is not a religious recipe for the right kind of prayer that God will hear. It is not, again, this is when I get in trouble, primarily to be recited and memorized. Now, that's not to say that there's not value in reciting and memorizing the prayer. One of the most um, treasured moments I have as a pastor is that when I pray with the dying, when I pray with people whose strength is failing, when I pray with people whose minds have failed them, I have found that in the midst of the deepest dementia, someone who has this prayer inside of them can, can pray it. It's fascinating to me. So I'm not saying that reciting it is totally pointless. I'm saying that 
Faithfulness to the prayer that Jesus teaches us requires so much more than sheer memorization alone. Faithfulness to the Lord's Prayer goes beyond memorization, beyond recitation. Instead, it goes to a pattern of prayer, a pattern of prayer given to usher us into the presence of God. A prayer to stir up relationship with the, with the Father, not as a little checkbox to check once a week when we go to church on Sundays. Right? Jesus gives us a prayer not so we'll know a prayer. He gives us a prayer so that we'll come to know a person. So to get us out of the rut of our familiarity, as, as I and others at our spiritual family are teaching this prayer, we're going to use a different version. Not thy kingdom come, thy will be done. By the way, if we're going to pray it, can we at least pray it with some energy? Lordy. But we're going to use a, a version that comes out of the Jewish New Testament, and it kind of highlights some of the Jewish aspects of the prayer. And, and it goes like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us the food we need today. Forgive us what we have done wrong, as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. And do not lead us into hard testing, but deliver, but keep us safe. See, I, do you see how I did it? Like, but keep us safe from the evil one for kingship power and glory are yours forever amen see we wanted a version that sounded familiar enough they understood it but that's different enough that it trips you up just like it tripped me up see just to get you a little off kilter to see if you can hear what jesus is trying to get at when jesus's disciples ask him to teach them about prayer he doesn't give them a prayer to be used only in gathered worship to be recited like drones he gives us a pattern of prayer to be walked out in every detail of our lives. So how do we do that? The phrases of this prayer that Jesus kind of, again, is ripping off of and, and, and riffing on from Old Testament and prayers of his time, there within this prayer, six signposts to aid us in prayer. There's the Father's character, right? Our Father in heaven. May your name be kept holy. There's the Father's kingdom. May your kingdom come as, and your will be done on earth as in heaven. There's the Father's provision. Give us the food we need today. The Father's forgiveness. Forgive us what we have done wrong as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. There's the Father's guidance. Do not lead us into hard testing and his protection. Keep us safe from the evil one. For kingship, power, and glory are yours forever. You see, when we pray, Jesus gives us signposts for prayer. And so we can put it on a hexagon because it sometimes just helps us remember things when we see them instead of hear them. In other words, we can use the prayer that Jesus teaches us here as a guide for prayer when we feel stuck. And I do this. I do this. So when I feel overwhelmed and unable to pray, I get out a piece of paper and I draw the hexagon. And I journal my way through it. 
Father, in the midst of this situation, here, here's your character that is true. And here's what's true about your kingdom. Here's what's true about your provision in the midst of this circumstance. And here's what's, isn't it interesting? It feels like the whole prayer hinges on forgiveness. Maybe that's why Jesus says, if we don't forgive, our prayers won't be heard. Right? Because something about unforgiveness makes our prayers false. Because sometimes in the midst of a situation, especially when I'm praying about <clears throat> them, I don't know about you, but suddenly I find while I'm praying that this is actually very much a conversation about me. <laughs> I ask for the Father, what is the guidance that I need? What is the protection that I need? We can use these as signposts. When we are burdened, we can run whatever we're working through through these six signposts. When we don't know what to pray, we can run our burdens through this and we can find language for prayer. We can assign each one of these to a day of the week. On Mondays, I'm going to pray about the Father's character. On Tuesdays, I'm going to pray about the Father's kingdom. On Wednesdays, I'm going to pray and on and on. What I want us to see and what you're going to hear is that these are signposts to shape our praying. So each person that's coming to preach over the next few weeks has been given one of these areas to preach in. And how did we assign it to them? It was very spiritual. I wrote each one on a piece of paper and I stuck it in a hat and I handed them the hat. My observation is every person was assigned a topic that the Lord wanted to speak directly to them about in a way that was frustrating and annoying. <laughs> I saw that coming. Now they chose the hard way out, our preachers. I said, I can just assign you a text from the book of Acts. They said, no, 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 let us pick a topic and then we'll pick a text. Cue three weeks of whining about how hard it is to pick a text. <laughs> and they did it and they've worked hard for, for six months on the same sermon. Now listen, these sermons are gonna be excellent if for no other reason then if I only had to preach once every six months, I would be great, right? Um, but also because th these people have worked together, they've prayed together, they've listened to one another, they've encouraged one another, they've edited, they've re-edited, they've cried when I've given them too hard of feedback. Sorry. Um, and it's good. They're going to work through each one of these at a time and shape our prayer more deeply around the Father's character, more deeply around his protection and his guidance, his provision. But in the last moments of our time together, I just want to revisit this question. Teach us to pray. This is a fascinating question to me. Teach us to pray because I'm not sure you can find a more prayerful community than first century Judaism. I'm not sure you can find a more prayerful people than Jews generally. Jewish people know how to pray. They have a prayer for every occasion. And this disciple, a young Jewish man, maybe a woman, does it say he said? No, it just says one of his disciples. Could have been a girl. These people know how to pray. They've been steeped in a culture of prayer, and they realize upon listening to Jesus pray that they actually don't know how to pray. Have you ever had that moment? 
Have you ever had that moment where you thought you knew what prayer was, and then some pastor got up and said, stop reciting the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> ever have that moment where you thought, I thought maybe just kind of lifting these kind of positive thoughts generally in the direction of my ceiling was prayer? Right? Have you ever had that moment where you thought, I can just pray quietly, and then somebody said, mm, you're going to have to pray out loud now? See, you're in good company. And Steph commented to me that one of the interesting things that's happening in this passage is that Jesus is teaching people who only know how to pray by rote, who only know how to pray with a recipe, who know how to pray formal liturgical prayers. He's teaching them off-the-cuff extemporaneous prayer. And ironically, what we have done is take this off-the-cup, mixtape, burnt CD of a prayer and enshrined it into something that we're supposed to repeat. Again, not a terrible thing, but not the best thing. And rote prayers can be good. Written prayers can be very helpful. If you were raised in a liturgical tradition, you know how to lament better than the rest of us. You know how to pray sad prayers better than the rest of us. The Bible has a whole book of written prayers. It's called the Psalms, right? But what happens um, when you lose the script? I was in drama club. You yell off to the side, line. And the line is the Father's character, the Father's kingdom, the Father's provision, the Father's forgiveness the Father's guidance, the Father's protection. I wonder if the Lord's Prayer is actually training wheels to teach us to pray out loud, to teach us to pray extemporaneously, to pr pray in a way that grows intimacy with the Father. And if you listen to me uh, or one of the other leaders in our church pray out loud and you find yourself praying out loud or think, I could never pray that way. Ironically, it's the Lord's Prayer that is the remedy for that. Because evidently the disciples didn't know how to pray either. In other words, here's what I'm saying. Evidently, we need to be taught to pray. Come into a church and you start to feel like, oh, I'm supposed to kind of have this down. But evidently, we need, to be, we need to be taught. We need to learn to pray. Evidently, the Bible's assumption is that we don't know how to pray, even if we are steeped in prayer. Left to our own devices, we don't know how to pray. Left to our own devices, we feel silly and embarrassed and inadequate and ill-equipped to pray, or arrogant, prideful, having mastered it in no more need of instruction and growth. Like the Pharisee who stands in the temple and says, I thank you, God, that I am not like that sinner. <laughs> Left to our own devices, our prayer lives can be co-opted by a cacophony of politicians and pundits. Fox News, CNN, Instagram would gladly provide you a liturgy for prayer. 
a liturgy that stops you from hearing what the Father is actually saying and doing. Love to our own devices, our self-aggrandizing prayers or falsely humble ones will limit our ability to connect with God. Left to our own devices, prayer becomes a passing sentiment. Oh, I'll be praying about that this week. If you ever hear me say to you, I'll be praying about that this week, and then I don't immediately stop and pray with you, then right now, I'll just be honest, I've not prayed for you that about that. Like, I just haven't. I just know my mind. I know my way. And so anymore, when people say, would you be praying about that? I say, well, why don't we just pray about it right now? And that's not me being super spiritual. That's me needing to get the like guilt of all the praying I should be doing off of my back. <laughs> right? Left to our own devices, prayer becomes an Instagram post and not a deep relationship with God. And here's the core of what I have to say to you is that prayer is about being with God. That's the goal is being with God. It's not about getting the words exactly right. It's about cultivating a soul and a spirit and a heart that more readily connects with our maker. And it seems to me that that's what the disciples saw. The disciples saw Jesus intimately connected with the father. And they didn't know that prayer could do that. And so when they saw this Jesus who knows the Father, who knows his voice, who says, I only do what I see my Father doing, they say, teach us to pray. Teach us to be that close to God. Teach us to be that near to him. Show us the life of intimacy with the Father that you have. That's the goal. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. I pray for me. I pray that you would teach us to pray. And I, I ask that when we learn to pray, we would actually learn what it is to be closer to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.